welcome to episode four of the Russian and Ranting podcast. I'm Ollie, and I'm joined by our regular group of Joseph, Scott, and Alex. It's great to have you all on again, gentlemen. How are you all doing? Yeah, good. Thanks, Ollie. Hope you're all well. Uh, nice to connect with the, the Diamonds community once again. All good. Thanks, Ollie. Fresh off the back of our Tom Lorraine podcast, our last podcast, which has done really well. Um, we've got a lot, of, lot to live up to with this one, but hopefully we, we can give it a good shot. Yeah, just to echo what everybody said so far. Good, thanks. And yeah, just looking forward to going through this podcast and also really, really surprised by how well our Tom Lorraine one has done so far. So if you haven't had a chance to listen to it, I recommend you download it now. Yeah, I definitely echo those sentiments as well, Scott, and I'm glad to hear that you're all well. So for this latest episode, um, we'll be joined by co-opted board member David Taylor, who is the strategy director at the club. He'll be talking about his role on the board and giving an indication of what's going on behind the scenes, how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted on his role and what work he's been doing during this time, an overview of the funding and grants that the club has had over the past year, and also the creation of the club's first strategic plan and what this means. Can you give us a bit of um, background on um, David Taylor, Scott, and how he first uh, came to be caught onto the board? Yeah, sure. I mean, David's um, a long-time fan of both um, the previous club and the um, post-2011 club. Um, we essentially, he, got, he first got captain, I think it was about the Colville game, actually, um, just before the season ended last time, um, around that sort of time, uh, which was before my time on the board. Um, essentially, I think they had a board meeting and they agreed to suggested to bring him on, which obviously we'll find out a bit more why they did that. The second time he was carped on, because the way options work is it's to do it's the it's to do with the board the election year, so it's from the July beginning of July um, in the summer to the following July the following year. So um, what we do is we have a meeting after the um, AGM, which is where um, we decide on co-options for the board. That's all the elected board officials. And obviously what we did was we discussed, we decided to bring David on as part of that. Um, and you're going to find out subsequently why we brought David on through this podcast. And it sort of gives you an indication of, you know, sort of the processes behind that. Well, it's been good to have some football this season, albeit not too much, but it's been good nonetheless. And there's a lot of people behind the scenes who have played a, a huge role in allowing this to happen. So I'm looking forward to hearing from David about the, the plans in place and the work that went on. We're really looking forward to this and it's a great opportunity to throw um, the spotlight on a different part of the club. So without further ado, on with the podcast. And then finally to the Diamonds, here came the moment that all the travelling became worth it. A long ball from Tom Cross, headed on by Russ Dunkley, he did that all game long. And then it was the Diamonds' Alfie Taylor to calmly side foot the ball into the back of the net with defenders and goalkeeper all converging on him to produce a wonderful roar from the travelling crowd and give Diamonds what was probably at that stage a deserved equaliser. Welcome to the Russian and Ranting podcast David, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I'll kick things off by asking when you first began to follow, support and get involved with the Diamonds to so going back to the days of the old club and through to the Phoenix club as well. Okay, yes, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me on tonight. So I, I'm one of the older ones who actually uh, been around football, I guess, in a certain way. We, I was thinking about this earlier. I think we moved to Rushton area, Wellingborough area in 91, and I think started going to football in about 93 uh, at uh, Nen Park. And at the time, I, I can't remember the first game, I have to say, but it was a, we are in the North Stand, and it was with my seven, eight-year-old lad, no, not for that, seven-year-old lad at that time. And we had a one-year-old 
growing. So it was just me and him at the time. And it was, I always remember, it was Roger Rashby's days and we were in the North Stand. And that, so it goes back, what's that, nine, let's say 93. It's a long time, really. Um, a big part of my life, actually, when you think about it that way. So, and all through that, we went gradually, I guess, as uh, one son, then two sons, and then two sons and the wife going along all the time to games and picked up all the way along. And since then, have been, I think, by one year, been following the club in one format or another, home and away, seeing people, a number of us on here, at different places, at different times, in different parts of the country. So, quite a long time in terms of football uh, and part of history in that sense. Um, I think in, I mean, I played, to summarise my bit, I suppose, around it, I ended the previous club's time as part of the trust board as well. So I was involved in the handover bit, really, between Max's time and Keith's time, when you think about it, and got involved at the latter end of the trust elements of the club. But used to do all sorts of stuff at that time, like cleaning the seats in the airway and all those things and running around like a headless chicken um, on games under... Uh, before the season started to get it ready, that kind of stuff. Um, and used to cut the grass around the place at, in the trust days when we couldn't afford to spend a penny on the ground just to keep it going outside and all that. So it's kind of like a very patchy kind of history to it in a way, but uh, um, interesting times, in fairness, watching the club go up, stop, come down again and start again. So good stuff. And that's a really impressive record that you've been you know, following the club and involved for... Um, you know, nearly 30 years now. Have you got any, I know it's difficult to say over such a long time, but have you got any main standout memories from from those years? I, I think as a footballing one, and it's a bizarre one in a way, having seen the club get promoted, win things, come down and all that. There were always two that stand out in my mind for different reasons. One was a game, um, a cup game, I think, FA Cup game on a night against Grantham, actually. And it was 5-4, something like that in the early days. But it was one of those games of football. I'm sitting with Mark and we're on maybe the front row just as you came in the North Stand in the middle there. And we were watching the game and it was it was such a a good game of football that went from one way to the other and all the rest. Of it. And it just always sticks in my mind of one of those really cracking games of football. And the one that's the negative side of it was funny enough being at Boston, which is part of my home area from uh, Lincolnshire, when we went out and... You know, sort of stood there and um, haven't got relegated. So it's kind of like a different way of doing the same thing. So Grantham on the one hand, Lincolnshire Club, and Boston on the other hand, um, in a different way. That Grantham game that you just referred to there, was that the FA Cup game, the 5-4? Yeah, that's it. 5-4. Yeah, really fond yeah. memories of that game as well. I, I still think yeah. it's probably the most goals I've ever seen in a game, but it was just brilliant, wasn't it? End-to-end. I think Macklehack yeah. got a couple that day. Yeah, just such a superb... Yeah, you know, atmosphere, really classic game of football. Brilliant time. Have you got any standout memories from um, from the time of AFCRD as well, David? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting one, I suppose. I think in a different way, not necessarily related to a game. I think maybe two things, really. One was when we transferred to Hayden Road and it was a close run thing to get in the ground ready for the first game of a season when we were moving from here or Wellingborough down to... Uh, Hayden Road. And I think we were lucky in some ways, in many ways, to get it going, but it was a tight start. And I think actually the realisation that we got the game on, given that we were struggling to get games on at that time, to get it ready, was quite a, a good feat. Nothing to do with actually the game or watching it or, you know, but just actually getting it going was quite good. And then bizarrely, the other one was uh, this last season when we got ready and played post-COVID 
in a different way. And the same kind of principle of getting the place ready to play football as opposed to watching football in a very different way. Yeah, very much so. And, and talking of COVID, it leads me on to my next question, actually. So I'll take you back to February of last year when you were co-opted onto the board in the role of strategy director. Um, yeah. And you were then co-opted onto the board again in July 2020. Um, yeah. Can you give us an idea of the process behind this co-opt? And, and had you had much experience of similar roles before? I know you said that you'd been involved with the with the old RDFC as well. I mean, the bottom line, I, I've always been involved in, on and off with the club in different things in the new format from doing bits and bobs, so doing all their planning applications, et cetera, they've done and helping out in different ways. So I've been around this club for a bit and would obviously be one of those people would constantly chip in with ideas that maybe we could do something or we could have a go at this. And by the very nature of knowing people on the board for uh, around the club or around the club is actually better than on the board, knowing people at the club for a period of time. I think, I mean, it's, it was about actually January last year when I had the phone call from Ralph, who was actually in San Diego at the time, asking me whether I'd help them on the strategic plan. Um, because at that stage, you know, we were playing football. Football was going on. Everything was happening as normal. And um, he'd recognised, as, as I say, he the board as a whole, but he had, was the one who contacted me about it to help out on trying to do something a little bit different to get their next stage of going forward, give them a bit of formalization stand back a bit maybe have a look at where they could go um and that started and then as you say i started in uh, february i think the the difference between have i have experience and why could i do it i spent a lot of time at 30 years that you might have made me think about 30 years watching football in that 30 years of working i've done a fair few things similar in terms of either being involved in strategy, involved in winning franchises for rail companies, in bringing new trains over here, doing strategy in different places, operational management in different places. So transferring it a little bit and bringing the knowledge to the football club that you can adapt made sense if you sort of bring those two things and have a bit of time to be able to do it. Um, I often forget that I've been co-opted twice, really, because I did try and get out of July coming back. Um, I should have looked on that one. But I would say that in a serious way, when I joined, literally I joined after the board meeting, that our next board meeting is next week, I think. And so it would be that board meeting when I would have officially joined, if you sort of mean. So coming up to exactly a year. And in that time, I think as a board member, I've seen three away games as a board member in that entire year. And that, that says quite a lot about how much football we've actually managed to play in that time. Um, so while I thought I was coming on to help give some structure, give some a different way of looking at things, it was going quite well until obviously we didn't have any games in February, of, at the end of February, early March, something like that. Then we had the first lockdown. And then at that stage, what was supposed to be working on a plan obviously disappeared because all we had then was a club with very little revenue, if no revenue for a long time and nothing forecast, with a lot of costs obviously in the system. Um, at a time when actually you uh, it's getting tight, I think is the easiest way I can ever see it. And from day one, I think all our time when I joined was then about how do you get the club into a safe position to go forward from a position whereby I wouldn't say it was broke and that be the wrong expression, but it was very very tight. It was hand to mouth in a way, and you either do you have to focus on making sure we get the money in. So a lot of my time was then spent as somebody a bit different an opportunity to get it. Obviously worked in local authorities in the past. I know my way around sort of government funding and you kind of help on that kind of area. So 
Um, strategic plan didn't come until a lot later, to be fair. David, what were your uh, initial roles and responsibilities um, in your position on the board and, and how much did that change as a result of the pandemic? Well, so originally I, I'd come in with a plan in my mind over, I don't know, literally, I suppose, until the handover of the board reconfigure in, in June, almost July, whenever the elections are and going. Actually, I came on with a view so I would help develop a plan, do a bit of consultation, work it through, um, set that process off and get to what you've seen a summary of in terms of what's out there at the moment. Um, and I think I did maybe a week on that at that time and then literally the rest of the time was uh, finding money finding grants finding access to money and um, finding ways we could do so actually behind me the shirts that we've all got in different places was part of not what I did but I mean part of what we're all trying to do at the same time trying to get people to keep buying new season ticket for the following season getting people to be members for the you know pharmacy all that work about driving revenue a completely a different time to what we'd ever be doing it in the football club while also planning for the work we would need to do both covid wise and operationally for getting the games back on again at the ground at a time when put it into a slight context we had people like you all know darren at the ground who was suddenly not around because he couldn't he'd been trapped away so actually you're suddenly in a position where we thought we'd do one thing and we've lost actually people who do things and we still had to get things done so to be honest one week of maybe doing the strategic plan, getting to know what's going off, understanding what the club have been doing for the last nine years and why they do it, to suddenly changing completely and doing COVID stuff. Yeah, just to add to that, actually, just so those so you guys are aware, Darren was stuck in um, quarantine in Spain at the time, so he's usually obviously the, the main um, stadium operator, which, oh, sorry, stadium manager, um, which is why he wasn't about. And also on top of that, we've got a lot of obviously volunteers who usually do stuff at the ground, which are in what you would call the high risk group. So they generally stayed away. So when we were doing, when you saw the COVID preparations, which we saw at the first game, David was actually going down in the week with a few volunteers and doing odd jobs and that to get it all ready for that, that game in August um, when we kicked off um, against, um, I can't remember, I think it's Kingsley, wasn't it, from memory? Um, but yeah, that's how that all came about. So David was actually doing a lot of that on, in, on the scenes, but obviously because of the um, COVID situation, we could only have limited volunteers down there at that time. Yeah, that's true. And I think it's um, on that point, it's quite interesting to think that if you like, the first bit was about money and the first amount was getting grants and finding out and packaging our information to actually when we applied for a grant, we're successful. What, what we often forget actually at the time, the grant payments that was available via government that actually are an important part of our current uh, support packages were only based if you paid rates, business rate payer. Now, as, as we all know, we, we're kind of not a business rate payer at the football club at all, So because we rent our space, our, our time there. So at that time, there was no support for um, organisations that were um, like us, you lived on a lease. So we, it, this is where, in a sense, where I get um, give a lot of praise back to the people putting up at the council, the, the officials of the council, because... We spent a lot of time with them, working with them, how we could get money, how we could get support, how wrong it would be that a club like Russian Dams, a lot of organisations like us around the country who were missed off from the initial kind of thinking. Bear in mind that nobody knew what was happening, that would be fair to say, at the time. So we were missed out. And I have to say, there were some people at the, the council who spent a lot of time then feeding that back into the system, into the cabinet office kind of reviews that did a lot of um, support around it. and. 
if the the outcome of it for our bet and other clubs around the country was the discretionary grants that came back out and that that may sound a bit daft but but discretionary grants is what enc pay give us support with um because you meet the needs of doing it so it was a lot of time trying to get that money in place to make sure we got some support as much as sport england football foundation for example which gave us some support at the same time yeah, I just think actually, was it's a lot. Of, it's a lot of people in the departments, isn't it, at the councils, which have given us a lot of yeah. help, David. One song here is where people wouldn't necessarily think about who do a lot of the stuff that's been going for the admin to actually get, you know, to actually support local businesses and include our football club. And obviously, there's not they don't always get the credit they deserve for what they do. Yeah, now I think that's fair. I think when you consider that, you know, Joseph was saying about how, what was changed in what I did when I joined the club. If you think if you're in uh, Thrapston. In the council offices, and all of a sudden you're not in Trapston in the council office. You sat like we all are now, trying to work at home, uh, trying to deal with issues, being the centre of what you need to do to get some money out, and to help people, and to sift through thousands of people who might apply for money at that time to get it right and to make sure it's done right and help. Um, the team that they've got, some of the people who are leading that teams, were outstanding actually because they understood what we were going through because we literally had costs. And no revenue uh, and anybody in any business knows that costs and no revenue is a not a good position to be in revenue and no cost is quite reasonable in fairness but there's not many of those about i don't think um you've touched on the grants david and obviously you've played a really important part in securing those grants and helping the club access some funding over the course of the pandemic can you give us an overview of the grants that the club's received in this time and also the, the fundraising that the club's done for example you know the team building lottery that's done really well yeah yeah I, th I think that's a fair point. I think there's, it's funny actually, because the grants are one thing and I, and I will come give you some idea what we've had for that. But the, the thing that struck me at the beginning of it was, and, and, I, and I, I think I speak for everybody that sat around that board trying to work it out at the time, was the sheer support that came initially from people in the club, people who support the club in many different ways. And it, it seems daft at the time, actually the amount of people who bought a season ticket in March when we didn't have any football or April when we didn't have any football coming up but bought it when they still had a season ticket that they you know were waiting for football to be used in some ways I think about two-thirds of the season we managed to play but to actually see people dip into their pockets and buy a season ticket to pre-pay effectively for the, the following year um, the people who bought their memberships actually more than I think most of us would have expected to be fair at that time uh, given an individual uncertainty for people was amazing. I think, actually, you're right when you talk about the lottery. I think I attended a meeting in February. I think John Gregory was launching the lottery. I think I'm about right in that kind of time uh, down at Hayden Road and we were doing that process. And yeah, that was the, the take-up of that is, again, I would suspect beyond anything that they would have seen in the case when they were developing the business case for that particular model. And the take-up of that the approach of that. I bet everybody on here buys a ticket on here. Yeah, at least one ticket. Yeah. And you know, and that is fantastic, isn't it, when you think about it? And that's spread by around the organization, around the, the club, people buying it and doing it. So I think that's a great, great thing. I think the one that really taught me though is the shirts at the back here. I have to say that when when the shirts and that the idea, and I still don't know the person who came up with the shirt, uh idea in itself, but it came in feedback it came in people raising the idea if you like as opposed to somebody sitting on um a committee somewhere and say oh i've got an idea i'll do this it came inwards if you sort of mean and it worked remarkably well 
And actually, when you look at the number of people on a shirt, you look at the amount that were sold, you look at actually people thinking, it's a level that we were charging for the name too much and would we sell any? And actually, you know, we all know that was a roaring success for it. So in a way, I would say that what our supporters gave was outstanding, coupled with that people who made money donations. Again, outstanding. Money that you think, why would people make it? Fantastic amount of work. And that was then supplemented. That's the point about the grants. That's why I come back to the grants supplemented what everybody had done in the first place. Because once we'd got our where we could get them from, it worked. Quickly, where we got them from, I think I'll just do that and then because um, I'll forget some of these. And Sport England was the first one. And that was an important grant because that actually got us going. That was uh, a 10 grand, something like that. And a 10 grand seemed an awful lot of money because it was one where we had to apply precisely, if you like. If you didn't apply, you didn't get it. And I, I remember other clubs around saying, oh, I've got so-and-so, four grand, we better get in quick and all this. And then we were uh, we were chuffed as anything when the 10 grand came through because that was a massive difference to this football club at that time, in fairness. We then got money from the Football Foundation uh, in a different way. We got money to support us for COVID things, for example. Um, we got money in terms of then from the council once started coming in, I think about June or something like that. And then we got a 10 grand, a five grand and, a, and so and so. So we get money now at different times for operating costs when we are not got any revenue, basically, is the way it works at the moment. I think just to come back to the shirts as well, I think that was an idea yeah. raised by fans on the fans forum. And the yeah. fact that the club, you know, embraced that and, and went ahead of it just goes to show how much the fans really are at the heart of the club. Absolutely. I, I think that was the, the biggest single thing, if you like, that's because that's self-generated. It's created by the family that's part of the football club, as opposed to, you know, going off the shelf somewhere. It was a fantastic way of somebody coming up with an idea, generating it, taking it. And making it work and developing it and through to at the end of the day macron coming up with a design that worked and got them out and actually if it wasn't for the next level of covid everybody would have been wearing them all the way around the ground for the last few weeks anyway and watching them you know which is brilliant isn't it i'm uh, i'm happy to admit on this podcast I, I was someone that was a little bit dubious about the shirt idea and i, I said it publicly on on the forum i wasn't sure how many people would come forward for that, yeah. given that they were being asked at the same time to buy season tickets, buy memberships, not knowing when the season was going to start. I think the amount of people that did do it, as you correctly said, was was staggering, really, and testament to the fan base that we have at the football club. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think a lot of people around the table where we were were thinking, can you get it? How much can you get? Would you get anywhere near it? But you're quite right, Alex, when you think about what people were spending out their own pocket at that time, given they didn't know what their position was going to be work-wise yet. It's strange that we're all used to a year later of surviving around this kind of way of working at the moment, but people had no idea. It was completely different, wasn't it? So, yeah, you're right. It's, it demonstrated the strength of people in the organisation. I would say there's been there's been a kind of a clear shift, not just from our club, but from all clubs in non-league, this lockdown compared to the first lockdown. We've just run through some of the things that the club asked of the fans at the time, and the fans were great coming forward with those. But clubs, kind of a Twitter was awash with clubs saying we need money repeatedly. It's not happening this time, so that's not just our club, but all clubs. How has the situation changed now in this lockdown compared to the first one? I think, well, I think from our level, I think there's there's a difference to maybe some others. To be fair, we we at the time were panicking for money because we really needed it, and I think at this time I, I make it quite clear before 
uh, Matt Ward rings me up and, and says I've said completely wrong thing. We we are not flush. We are not rich or anything. We are just paying our way at the moment to keep going. And I think the difference is at the moment with it, the it's you know where the money comes from, if you like. You can tackle it. And and actually, the fact of you can go and get your money from a council. And if, if we were operating the bar and we were operating that, we get money from not operating the bar in the same way. So there's actually is money there. I think a lot of people who say, I, I've spoken to clubs in the last um, few months whereby they've struggled to find where they can get money from. But then when you talk to them, say, well, actually, it's about maybe where understanding where to go, then you'll find it and actually knowing it. And I know people like the FSA have tried to help and the FA actually tried to help getting information out. But it's maybe the realisation that football at our level is run by a lot of people who do other things as part of their normal lives as well. And actually knowing where to get it from is not as easy. And I think maybe people know a bit more now than they did before. And people have got a bit more astute to it. And obviously, you know, contracted players, etc., are kind of dealt with slightly differently to the furlough scheme like anybody else in that way. But it's not quite as difficult. It's hard, but it's not as difficult as it was this time last year in that sense. People know what to do, I think. Uh, Matt Ward actually um, every month sends every board member um, a list of what the outgoings and the in income is every month. So we're all, we're all aware of what's going on at any point each month at the club in terms of, you know, what the financial situation is. So we are keeping an eye on it throughout this. And incidentally, we also have like quarterly budget reviews. I think we've got one coming up this month as well. So we do keep an eye and keep a track of what's going on this time. So that's part of the reason, what, part of the big reason why you probably we haven't We've been very, very quiet, as well as David says, because we are keeping an eye on the situation very and monitoring it very, very closely. So if obviously we do need to take any sort of action, we can be proactive rather than having to be reactive, uh, which obviously is what happened when the first pandemic came in, where it caught everybody by surprise, which is why you saw on social media and Twitter and um, from our club and as well as others, people asking for money to buy season tickets and that to keep things afloat. I think that's right. I think actually... In a, in a way, I should have said maybe earlier, and I've forgotten her sense, but I think it's actually important to say that the, on the one hand, the dedication of some of the people who've been around this club for a long, long time now, or actually 10 years when you think about it, um, from the beginning, and we're still there doing it and working it and doing the kind of stuff they're doing, is a immense, actually, when you think about it, the amount of hours they put into doing it. But as Scott says, once you put then a, a good, rigorous system in place to make sure you know what's there, you know what you're doing with your money, you know where you spend it. The same as we would all do in our own lives, but apply it in a business sense. A football club is at the end of the day, we are custodians of a business at the end of the day. And we're all, none of us are employed to do it, but we are custodians of a business. We do trade, if you like, for money. It is a product we sell in that sense. So we are responsible for people in it. Um, and actually, I think, therefore, the things that Matt does in terms of proper financial reporting, this year's, as Scott said, the introduction of quarterly reviews going forward, where we will review what we're spending going forward, not, oh, my God, what have we spent? We haven't got any more, if you like. So what do we do? As much as how do you make sure you've got the money there for future things that the club needs to do in the same way? Because as anybody knows, you've got to build your operational stuff as well as your future kind of money. might well be wondering to themselves is it going to be one of those nights that's another chance gone begging Jim Rodwell will take it into Pat the Box Sonic comes at Eddie half punches Butterworth back in chance in for Lowe and that is the deadlock broken David Lowe 55 minutes gone 
And the Diamonds have the goal that they've been threatening to score. You spoke early, David, um, about you being one of the main leads on ensuring that Hayden Road um, could welcome back supporters when the 2020-21 season got under, underway last September. Um, how much work did it take to draft, finalise and implement oh. required risk assessment, you know, the action plan, the COVID match day documentation for the ground? Obviously, it must have been a, a huge um, piece it, of work. It was. Yeah, it was. And I, and I, I should be clear on this. Um, there were three of us on the board who were responsible for that. That was myself, Stacey and uh, John Gregory. And we did things in our different ways and different responsibilities. So my, as you put it, lead to get it right was to actually do some of the physical bits because I'm obviously um, more capable of doing the physical bits than the thinking bits sometimes. Um, but actually, it was, a, it was a team effort to get it done. That kind of stuff was there. The, the simple, truthful answer to it, though, was, yeah, again, you you have to take the view maybe that people didn't know what was coming and how it was going to work and didn't follow what was coming out in terms of advice, requirements. And a number of people did, a number of organisations did. But once you followed it and you worked out, you'd refer to risk assessments and you refer to action plans and all that. We spent an awful lot of time developing proper, robust risk assessments for all elements of the football ground, from what you know, everybody knows is the last mile, the bit of getting to the football ground, coming and going. The queuing outside, the ticketing, the way that they sell, etc. What you do when you come in the turnstile, how the turnstile operates, what it does when you get in, what it does where you sit, where you stand. You have to do them all the way through. And we also did the same things. Bear in mind, we have a a, a relationship with Russian and Hyam for the clubhouse, which is we helped them do theirs in the same way. So it would come together as a joint action plan rather than two different bits of it. And that took a lot of time um, for in terms of Hayden Road for myself and John Gregory to do in fairness, bit, different bits of it. And then while at the same time, Stacey was doing all the bits around the football side of it, the players and what do they need to do? Because the amount of admin in a world where you didn't know what was coming was tremendous. If you were got the right stuff, it helped. We were lucky, I'll be honest, we found, um, and I always get this the wrong way around, but it's one of the safety advisory groups for stadiums. It's the requirements that you need to what you can have in the football ground. And it allows you to have one metre plus to measurements, et cetera, on where you can sit. And we used it right from the beginning. And it's what the teams hire when they brought uh, people back in were to do, but hadn't done their work on. We set ours. So uh, use the same uh, data, the same information, the same structure. If you followed that, it meant that your risk assessments were more robust. It meant that your action plan then was more robust. And it meant that you, because if you tailored your ground to it, it meant that you got the right outcome, as opposed to just saying, oh, our attendance is 600 because that's what it says it can be and that's why we have an attendance of 450 because actually if you do it properly that's what we can get in our ground and keep people safe within the ground which is the paramount bit at the end of the day um but doing that was was phenomenal once we got it approved in, if you like and published and there to be done the key was getting it done so that's why i always say to you actually to my mind one of the biggest things was getting the day when we'd finished painting the last bits in the place and we could open was quite important because that if we had done it we could have started other clubs started without any of that you know we've been to in the very few games that we managed to play this year we went to grounds where they were nowhere near ready in terms of it should never have been open realistically whereas now actually people know again what it is we know that whenever we play football again now we will have to get the ground ready to be compliant and i have to say again credit to actually the people who attend the games because the amount of effort that went in the amount of us who were wandering around painting at different times and cleaning stuff ready for the ground to happen 
was made a lot more easy to kind of reflect on when people actually live by the restraints. It is a pain in the neck that you've got to walk all the way around the ground at different times to go somewhere. It is a pain in the neck that you can't stand next to your mate that you've always stood next to, maybe, for example. But that's the price of pain. And, and actually, most, I would say the vast majority of people who attend our games accepted it pretty quickly, generally speaking, except for when it rains. There's a slight problem, of course, that it ran like ours. But, but actually, most people took it really well, actually. You can't put a price on people's safety, can you, David? And it must have made, it must have um, made you feel so proud yourself and everybody else involved, you know, with the preparation work on the ground. It must have made you feel so proud, as I say, when the first fans started coming through the through the turnstiles for that first game. That must have been a great feeling. It, it was because it, it's you kind of you're up against it, you know, and you could actually at any time be closed down because it could have been a visit to say you're not safe. So you had to be sure in your mind that what you were doing for everybody that came down there and did it and moved stuff, painted stuff and did right up to the day of opening to actually even the people, I mean, Scott's worker trying to get a ticketing system in place quickly that has worked that nobody can imagine as not having now, I think, to be fair. Um, all those things had to be done. And actually, when you when the first tickets are being sold on the system and the first people come through and the first ball gets kicked and actually took wood. After that, we had no adverse issues at the ground. I'm not aware of anybody that was put in a position whereby they were felt it was a bad place to be. We actually got what was really nice was people coming back and saying they were nervous of going to football. They didn't like the idea because, of course, everything had been really bad at one stage. And actually standing in a crowd in a football game was difficult. And actually some of the comments coming back saying, you know, we appreciate what it feels like and I feel safe coming to a football game from people who have got underlying conditions, for example, that was worth quite a lot. That's more than any other effort you can put in. I just want to add to that, just talking about the ticket system there, um, that actually operate, the reason why we went down that route is because it allowed us to operate it as our own track and trace, which is why it was all cashless at the ground. Because if you had a ticket, we knew you were, um, when you got scanned on the turnstiles by Matt Hockridge and his team, at that point we knew you were in the ground. So if anything had happened and there had been a breakout where Obviously, we had to. You had to be quarantined in that, and we had to. The club had to provide a list of who had attended at the ground. It was very easy then to know who'd actually been there. Um, whereas, obviously, lower down, it wasn't necessarily a lot of those lot of clubs. It was literally just a pen and paper job. You fill your name, and your contact details. Where of us, you didn't turn up unless you had a ticket, which meant that we always had an inkling of how many people were going to be turning up. So that made it easier for us to manage the numbers in terms of steward requirements, and obviously on social distancing requirements. It wasn't going to be a Russian um, Russian roulette. We we could have more. Like David said, more than 450 turning up, which is what we could get in safely based on what we calculate. I know, obviously, that there has been some debate that it looked like we could have got more, but it was based on obviously the various groups and that to make because we had to make some assumptions that how many would get in in that respect based on we couldn't just assume that we were going to get lots of bubbles turning up. Yeah. Um, so at that point, we were always on the board. So if anything had happened, we were very reasonably confident that um, football would have continued at Hayden Road if we'd had an inspection. We should give a bit of credit to actually to um, Public Health Northampton here because um, at one stage they were looking at what people were doing and Ralph, in fairness, um, reached out to them to raise concerns. They were trying to say at one stage that football shouldn't be happening because it's too dangerous to, to be in. And because they were talking about a level of football where clubs couldn't do the things that we could do, but we weren't in the elite where you'd expect them to do it. So that they were talking about a lower level of football, maybe park football, where things are a bit 
not as organized and people didn't have the way of being able to do it and uh we sent all our stuff over to them all 105 pages i think of our uh, processes and stuff for it and um they found no issue with what we've done at all and never queried a thing about what we were trying to do how we've done it what we've done so and, and hopefully allowed them to go and deal with bigger issues <laughs> that needed dealing with but given at the time don't forget, we were most probably the biggest single crowd in northamptonshire on a given day at that time because nowhere else was taken, allowed to have anybody in and we were there with you know 450 people in a football ground in a closed space um and it was only if one of the others corby might have been on at the same time or something but obviously the others didn't have the numbers so we were that was quite a, a step in a way from memory also corby because they were at the last step we've been capped at 400 so as long as obviously yeah. we got we had more than 450 we were going to always be the biggest crowd at that point in Northamptonshire. David, has the club considered, um, with regards to season tickets, the possibility of a high percentage of the fan base looking to get a refund? Hopefully it wouldn't come to that, and I'm guessing it didn't come to that last season, but with only a handful of the games played, um, how is the club going to look to get around that situation? Good question, actually, and I think you're right to highlight the difference. I think last year, I can't remember the exact amount of people who either had a refund or made a donation out of their money or just left it, if you like, and in the system but it was a relatively small amount of people asked for some money back but you're right it was a small amount of games that was left to be played and actually by the time the decision had happened we were already getting ready because a lot of people had already bought their ticket anyway for this season for three games and i think it's it is a difficult one to guess what will be the outcome on that at the moment i think it's fair to say we have looked at we've discussed around the board what the options might be but the and what we can do in terms of um, season ticket holders now reflecting the difference the difficulty i think is where we are today is we don't actually know the answer to what's going to happen with the season and it would be really nice if we were sitting here in an ideal world knowing that either the season is going to be declared null and void and therefore whatever because you can make a decision or that the season is going to restart in march the first because you can make a decision or it's going to be only 20 in a games and he can make a decision. At this moment in time, all we've been able to do is look at what options may be there, what happens to the money. It's worth saying with season tickets, of course, the revenue hasn't been taken for the games that we played because we've not played them. We've not done it that way at this moment in time. So the money is kind of there, but not we haven't used that money, uh, which is slightly different scale to where we were. I think it would be fair to say last year when the games are being played, taken the money, and actually, we were then losing games at the same time. Now we've not played anything. We've not, therefore, Matt doesn't draw the money down to it, so it sits there. But ideally, you, you're right. The, the implication of what you're saying is we don't want everybody, when you think about it, to find that they all want their money back at the same time. It'd be better to actually see people staying within the club for the new, the new season because that will be there. I'm actually, I have to say, I'm more optimistic now than I would have been this stage of it last year in sort of the summertime when we're getting up to a season that actually we're going to be in a pretty safe position with the season to start um without any knowledge i should point this out but in august or whatever that turns out to be and have a season that will be largely played i think we're in a much stronger position the fact of a lot of people are getting their jobs a lot of people are getting their improvements in that kind of thing. i think we are a very different situation to where we were getting start to a season last august that then had a, a break obviously where we are now and then a break 
So hopefully it'd be better. But all I can say is we've discussed it, looked at options, and until that decision, it becomes very difficult to then do something about it. What I would say is a caring club, I guarantee you, will be the right way of doing it for the people within the club rather than the wrong way of doing it. You know, that's not the way the club's culture. Agree with that, with David. I mean, as we've had these discussions, as I said, obviously, I've been part of these discussions. Um, don't forget, obviously, some of them are actually season ticket holders on the board as well. So we've yes. got our own like, personal stake, if you like, in how that works. Um, what I would say is, obviously, other clubs have actually released what they would do based on if X, Y and Z happens. Um, but what we've decided, as David said, we're waiting until the, seat, the Southern League actually, or the all three leagues that step um, three decide, because obviously they work, work in um, conjunction with each other normally, um, once they've made their final decision. Because if we put something out now, and then whatever they came out actually might um, change what actually what we put out at this point in time, we could end up having a situation where we put out mixed messages and confuse people. If they only heard the first message, but didn't hear the second one. And so that's why we've held off actually saying what's going on season six. As David said, we have discussed it. It's just really waiting for the Southern League to actually let us know what's going on with the season before we can actually release anything and finalise it and then let the season ticket holders know what's going on. Trail here, 1-0 to Chester. It's John Brady prepares to take this free kick for which Peters has gone forward. And he gets his head to it and scores! Really fine header from Mark Peters. 1-1. Well, he's more than played his part at the back this season for the conference champions. And he stole up there to very good effect. Good flight on the free kick from John Brady. Peters could not have guided this header any better. In off the far post, Rushton level. You touched on it um, earlier, David, about the um, about you creating the, the club's first strategic plan. Um, I know it was signed off by the board last November and um, there's a summary document of it on the members area of the club's official website. Can you give us a bit of an understanding of why this document was created, what it contains and what its main aims are? Yeah, I think, uh, again, I, I think it's um, it's fair to say my only role in it was bringing it together. So I think it's um, um, this is a, a combined effort from the people on the board, if you like, to do it. On the one hand, from recognizing that after 10 years of you know a, a lot of hard work and reaching a level where as an established football club and this level of football with all that it's got going on in terms of its academy the scholarship the kind of the, the community angle to the club being here and being successful after 10 years is pretty good going by any stretch of the imagination but as in any organization as it grows as it develops there's a number of things that you have to look at the structure is a bit different to what you might need for the next 10 years of a football club when you think about it because do you stay where you are do you stagnate as a football club do you do you you know get lucky maybe and oh, I have to work harder in a different way or do you look at it in a slightly different way um and i think actually the board as a whole had recognized that they'd had a very hard they'd had a good time i should say but getting to a stage where it's harder to make those next steps without having a structure in place um and all we tried to do with this concept was first start try and look at how you might have a strategic plan in any other organization that's bigger more complicated more systems in place but then have something that allows the football club to have a clear plan that's that sets the future um 
And it is the board's responsibility to set the future of the club at any board. So at every year, it's the board's responsibility to set that for the members that we're there for, if I like to support. Um, so it was it seemed logical to have it, to have a system to put a process in place. But it was also seen important because of all our stakeholders out there, all our partners that we work with, all the, the organisations who deal with sport, all the local authority people, all the elements that we work as a whole have a similar strategy when you think about it. So we've got to marry up with that strategy in the same way. That's, I think the biggest thing that we've got in it is um, what are class of six strategic objectives. And I think the difference was in the maybe 10 years, it was about grow, 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 and grow. Get the best team on the picture we can get because the money was coming through you know, the turnstiles all the time and it was a being successful time. I think what we've had to do now and had to think about it a little bit more is put the platform in place that allows us to develop forward in a structured manner without being um, too much one side of the plan or too much other side. So we had six very straightforward um, strategic objectives, completely all agreed with by the board, funny enough, at the very early stage of this development. That's about being what we call attitude to be sustainable, or the bottom line, being a sustainable football club, how we provide it, how we run it, how we live. And that's important with the history that the clubs come from, that we go forward, as we all know. There's a bit about what we call focus on performance. And that is actually based from the first team, but all the way through the club. How does the footballing count? What's it look like? How do we bring people through the player pathway, if you like, route into football? How do we deal with it? That also has a link with then about being sustainable. So all those make sense when you think about it in that area. There's a thing about being at home, what we call being at home. And that, forgive me for some of the terminology we use, it's to bring it together. Being at home is where do we go in the future? So, yeah, pretty well versed the next stage of the club. And no disrespect to Hayden Road or the football club, but but that's not our ground. And where we go is, is the club wants to have its own ground and its own future. So that's a big project in this next few years. Um, so there's that. There's about the respect in the community we're in. And the reason why I always talk about the community we're a football club in East Northamptonshire, covering Rushton, Earthlingborough, Urchester, Trapston, um, you know, sort of finding and all the rest of it, as well as the area around it. We're part of the community. We're very much a community club. And we also have to take responsibility for working in the community we go, where we are now or where we go to in the future. There's a bit about um, our experience, delivering an experience in the ground. And that's all about when you come to the stadium, you come to the football or you go to watch the academy somewhere in the future, or you go to, if you're a scholar somewhere in the organisation, what you experience is professional, it's well done, it's well delivered. If you go in the future and buy a drink somewhere, you eat somewhere, you go to the shop, it's done in the right way that you would expect for our club. So it's a standard that's high and you get it. And then the final one, and actually maybe the most important one in the longer term, is about participation and increasing participation of the area we live in. And that's not about getting another, you know, 10 Tom Lorraines all the time to go and be a, a fantastic ambassador for a football club. But it's also about getting the young kids coming in in maybe some of the areas that don't have many opportunities, increasing their participation. So each one of those six blocks then is becomes quite important how you bring those together, as opposed to saying it's all about the new home or it's all about the first team or it's all about whatever it may be, was all about the money. They all come together, but it gives you a foundation to why you're going to do something. 
and how you're going to deliver it. David, how can our members and supporters get involved in that ongoing annual review and, and how it develops over the coming years? Um, the number one, and it, it is one of the weaknesses of COVID, to be fair, is that the first stage of it didn't happen to the level that you would normally do because they'd have been involved both as members and in wider presentations as supporters. And actually, you know, our sponsors, our suppliers outside of it and all the parts that would do it, we would have expected to have had more input at the beginning. But that's gone in a sense. So the going forward bit is about there will be an annual review um, each year between the seasons. It will tie in with the performance of how the club is, how the finances are, where we're going. It will be largely member driven at the beginning. So it's the kind of thing that would happen at a members meeting. So the AGM will become, or not the AGM actually, a members meeting will discuss more about the, the process, how we've delivered, how we're uh, going, how far have we got along the track, are our annual targets, if you like, right in where we need to go as a club and how do we do it and what would they like to see back into it. So that will happen. It's a case of how does that happen at the moment in terms of doing it and how does it take part. But it will happen and that will be part of that process. But equally, I think the interim part of that at the moment is we set targets for people. And I know targets give people so many nerves sometimes. I come from a targeting background. I know I live with targeting in all my life. And then you kind of think, well, hang on a minute. We're a football club. We play football. We're low volunteers. We're running an organisation that's about doing something. But we set targets for a number of reasons. And there's only a handful of targets in each of the strategic objectives that are there if you follow them through. So, you know, being financially sound, delivering on the budget, delivering on the money we make is an important target. So you can't, there's no point in going through the entire season in a normal season, to be fair, but in a normal season, meeting 50% of your revenue budget and then spending as if you've achieved 120. So you've got to be correct in what you're doing. So we've set targets and those targets will be either in the plan. So people, anybody who goes on the process will see those targets. And the principle is that every quarter will keep people informed about how we're performing. We could do it every month, but some of them are more quarterly based targets, if you sort of mean. So if you did them every month, this somebody wouldn't really see a difference. But you start to see it and you'll get a feeling for what's happening. So on the one hand, we wanted to provide an indication about what we're trying to do and how we're doing it, an indication of how well we're doing against it so people can really see it's visible. There's no hiding behind it, if you like. And equally, as an organisation, we can make sure when we review it, just like we do with finance, where we need to change tack because it's not quite working on time or something's not quite happening, it means we can deploy the resources that we've got, limited resources, to the areas where we need to do it. We might need, we need to slow something down or speed something up, but it allows us to look at it, sense the direction and make the adjustment that we need to do. And I think that's actually quite an important part for the development going forward as a football club. You've touched on the targets there and there's a, there's a whole section on the KPIs, which is a fascinating read for all supporters. I'd recommend everybody has a look at it if they can. I'm just interested to know how the specific um, kind of KPIs were set, how the percentages were worked out. And you've also got bits on there of what percentage of that target is deemed acceptable. How was that arrived at also? The ones that are quite straightforward are easy to do. So the finance one, for example, were relatively easy KPIs to do because we'd work with how you'd normally want to measure them, allow a degree of tolerance in terms of what is achievable. So if it's 100% is a target you want to get to, but 95% is a flexible where you can get to, then it was kind of some are 
benchmarky kind of things that you can pick up from a different industry and apply and seemed reasonable to a football club. Others were very much more about as a group. Uh, and, I, and I would point out that not one target on here is given to somebody. The targets on here come from the board of grid. And I'm sure Scott will concur. We would go through these every single month until they were signed off. And it was agreed um, in the October board for November final kind of out. Uh, so the targets were set to be a, I, I use the term in it, the balanced scorecard, if it like at the end of the day here, so that it's, it gives not everything skewed to money or not everything skewed to something else. It allows the each strategic objective to have some form of measurement that allows progress to be seen. So a good example, which as opposed to finance is say the new home, which is quite a big one. But in it, we have a process about what do we need to do in this year to make progress with the new home, if you think of that. So we need to have the budget in place. We need to have a project plan in place. We need to have a presentation to our fellow members, etc., at some stage about signing off the next stage and developing it and increasing it. So all those can be straightforward, smart targets. They can also be, in some cases, stretch targets about when they would be delivered. They can also be about directing. So if you don't have, I'm not saying it was this case, but if we don't have anything about, oh, we need to make sure we've got a budget signed off, we need to make sure we've got a proper project plan to deliver what we're going to do with that new home in time. And we've got to have a way of engaging fully, if you like, with a membership about what that looks like. What will actually happen is it will happen maybe, or it might not happen, or it will slip or do something slightly different. So it was trying to pick staged approaches that could make it happen and when would it happen to drive at the same time. But I would point out, and the strongest thing I would say, all the targets were set within the organisation of the board to be deliverable, smart in that sense, but also stretched. Nobody sitting there thinking, oh my God, Taylor has given me a target because that's not how the board works. Um, and it is about something that we feel is achievable, but it's also re worth reflecting. Two things really. One, it's a collegiate arrangement, the group. So it's not, you know, we're not in departments, we're not in somebody's in ops or somebody's in sales or somebody's in finance. We're all different people bringing a degree of expertise and we all have a degree of ownership of different areas. But it's a collegiate approach where we all have to kind of help each other. It's not about Scott has a target and nobody talks to Scott till he's achieved his target, although we tried that. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that is a target, by the way, but he doesn't know about that yet. But oh, in, a, okay. in a serious way, it's, it is about collegiate approach to we working together. And equally, we, we're talking, it, there's a group of, there's a group of um, committees in the organisation that brings it together. So it's a matrix model when you think about it. So we have what five, six committees at the moment that operate the club when you think about it. You know, a remuneration committee that looks after the basically the pay and uh, of the organisation and make sure we're not spending more than in the budget. A new home committee that's about the future, where we go. Um, a discipline committee, which funny enough deals with discipline. And Scott, I think you're on that next week, aren't you? Because you're in trouble there as well. And oh no, you've you've ducked out. I remember that. Yeah, uh, but the, that yeah, and we've got um, the um, a strange one is communication, digital, and marketing. But we can't get off of that one. Who chairs that, Scott? All right, it is. I have to own up. That is me who actually chairs that committee because um, we agreed at the last meeting because we all got we essentially at the previous board meeting we all agreed. We had to obviously appoint chairs, and yeah, I drew the short straw on the communications digital media committee. We all disappeared for five minutes and agreed to it. But the principle <laughs> is, in a serious way, that is a, again a committee. And funny enough, the podcast is a production of that 
committee. That's an output of that committee. That's a KPI of the committee. Not just we have a podcast, but it achieves a set of targets, it achieves a set of process, and it grows and develops. So the organization is based around working together in the best way that you can in an organization that's like ours. And, and I think that's really good. And every time as a board refreshes itself every year, those committees obviously can change. The committees, are, but it, it does really, each of the committees marries back somewhere to those strategic objectives at the end of the day. So it's trying to align where we're going and what structure we're going to get to. I think just to add to what David's just said is essentially what happens is um, when you've got after the, um, what we do after the AGM, there's a July meeting where we decide who to cart from, which is all the elected board members will come and decide where we've got the, and identify and where we've got skill shortages, which obviously, as you can probably guess, we've provided to bring David on. Um, we've worked on the COVID and the strategic plan, among other things. Um, and then after that, we have the first board, the next board meeting, which is the August one usually, which is where we agree the subcommittee. So that's, so that's when you hear about things like the new home committee, the communications digital media committee, which is actually a new one for this year. Remunerations, uh, player pathway, among others. Um, there's discipline. I think that might be it might be a few others I've missed off off the top yeah. of my head, but that's essentially how we how it came about. And then I think it was the September meeting. Um, David sent out a survey to all the committees for us to fill in, um, which from which our feedback is why actually formulated these KPIs and these objectives. So I think we did it over the first year for this year, and then there's a three-year one, and there's a five-year section as well. So the idea is an ever-evolving um, situation. But the idea, obviously, with publishing the plan in the members area is to allow members to have a look at it, scrutinise, review, and challenge us as well, and also yep. give us their input um, where they feel the club are going, because ultimately, obviously, they are the members own the club. It is our club collectively. So obviously, you've got, they've got as much... And we have got as much stake in it um, as any board member or anything. It's everybody at this club is important. So as just to reiterate what, what's been said so far, if you haven't read the um, plan yet, I'd really recommend you do. And then just let us know what your feedback and any ideas you've got to take us forward and to get us to the next level as a club. Yeah, I, I think I'd add one thing I'd add to that because I think that's, that is so important. It is every year it will get refreshed and it moves on. And it, but it's an important document. We could have kept, some clubs don't produce a strategic plan at all. Some clubs have one but never produce anything for somebody to see, which in itself is remarkably short-sighted, in my opinion. We, we produce something that is a summary of it. So you've, I think it's a nine-page document or one of them's nine pages, including the, the picture at the front. So it's maybe not nine pages. But the actual full ones, nearly 40-odd pages, are a bit more detailed behind it and the structure about how we operate. We're quite happy to talk to people about it and do it. There's no the only reason why I don't put it on is to say, you know, it's, it explains more about what are the drivers that underpin a strategic objective. What does it mean? How do you measure them? How, what's the culture of how we as a group would work? Because that's actually quite important. And things of that nature. And what are the committees, which we just summarised effectively, which I referred to in it, but what are their objectives, which bring back to what's actually in the KPIs every time. But anybody wants to go through it, understand it better that's not a problem in the in the normal sense we'll be able to talk to people sit with people look at it focus on it enhance it it might be somebody thinks why why didn't they have this strategic objective or whatever they prefer the name of at the end you know last week i attended a um the launch of sport england's new uh, strategic plan for the next 10 years which is quite interesting because they've always had a five-year 
plan, but because of the length of time that sport has got to kind of focus on things in the future, it's quite important. And they have five big issues in their plan. They're one that they literally have just launched. And it's actually, I'm going to read them out because I have to remember them. But it's recovery and reinvent over the future for the next 10 years. Big, one of the biggest issues. Connecting communities. Having a positive experience for people to, to give me, want to come to it, more experience. Um, connecting with health and well-being. So understanding sport to make you feel healthy and all the rest of it. Both body, mind and everything else. But having active engagement within sport. And most of those, if you trap them in a different way, ironically, fit quite nicely back to what we're trying to do in a different format. So it means that you become aligned as well in what we're trying to do and what they're doing. So we're more with them than against them, if that makes sense, in the structure, what we're trying to get to. I know Scott already touched on it briefly, Dave, but be interested to get your thoughts on it as well. How, how important is it for you and the board that members help drive and influence this strategic plan moving forward into the future? I think if they don't, it, it's a a useful document that serves a, a limited purpose. It's so useful for internally for the structure. The key to my point is it's that people should own it, should develop it, should feel that they are they like it. They feel that well, actually, um, you know, Alex said, look at the KPIs. They're there. Feel what they should there be more? It's worth looking at. It's worth interrogating. I would love for people to say actually we disagree with some of that. Because that means we'll grow it, we'll develop it, we'll enhance it. And but what I wouldn't want is people to sit in two or three years' time and think, you know, that bloke who used to be on the thing, he sits up there and look at the in the stand and he developed this thing and it was a complete waste of time. I told him it was. Tell us. It's better to be involved and develop and enhance it because it's our club. It's all our club, isn't it? And our club will be better by having something that has a vision that shows where it's going. We, we might get to the, the biggest thing I, I think is important with some of this uh, performance in it is it's a, a deliberate attempt by the board as it was is very much about how do we know we're doing well? How do we know we're doing what we said we're going to do? How do members know we're doing well? How, how are we achieving? It's there. It will be there for people to see. So the more that they get involved, the better. Yeah, you mentioned as well about the... Um other committee that you're on within the club can you give us a little bit more background about that and what what work that entails <laughs> well at the moment i i we all sit on maybe two or three different committees i think is about the average give or take yeah. in different ways um on some things and some people um get in, are in different ones more of them in different ways but i sit on the new home committee and that funny enough is about developing it's easy one the new home what it looks like where we might go getting the plan right getting the structure right and and i can assure you that doesn't mean to say that a, a number of us on the board will then dictate it do it and then say oh look at the new ground here it is that's not what it's about it's getting the processes in place to do that i sit on the player pathway committee um and i, I should say actually on the uh, new home committee just so you know it's easy it's uh, myself it's matt ward uh richard maxwell and ralph are on that one on the player pathway committee i um sit with, along with at the moment john ward normally mark hedges would be there uh richard maxwell again in terms of his obviously input and one other ralph is in that um and that is all about how we construct that side of the club for the future realistically that means that players can come in at the young age make their way through the club and become a tom lorraine in a serious way 
that is what it should get yourself to as much as widen participation have a professional approach to what you're doing but the outcome is in one of those kpis that people start playing football at the highest level coming through the ranks so we do that and that's about checking it's got the structure it's got the finance it's got the process it's got people coming out and then the other one i'm part of is um scott's um, empire which is the <laughs> communication uh, digital market it's one of the biggest and the best actually of the entire organization i would say and on that there's myself john gregory um and uh john ward um and obviously led by illustrious leader captain scott <laughs> <laughs> but i mean and that, and that one's all about uh, in a realistic sense about with communications has been i i would say has got better as a club people have tried to communicate quite well as a club over the years but it's often the thing that's hard to do when you try to tackle a lot of other issues one of the things that we did last year actually uh, which i think on communication was better we had our weekly updates all the way through that ralph was sending out effectively in terms of what it was and actually that's an interesting one because we've only done a couple this time and that goes back really made to what Alex was asking earlier, what's the difference, why the difference? But that was then a challenge to get communication out and get people more engaged. And we were actually saying, I think in my time around the club, which is obviously 30 years um, in different forms, is we were saying to things to people that we most probably would never have said before, like we are in trouble, we need your help. Uh, we most probably may not have done that previously in a different time, you know, so that changed. But to make it the next step in communication, this element of it, changing the way we do it is a big step in that having the right approaches for what in the longer term is put out as a proper set of information over the year over the parts of the club the development of what that looks like getting the webs organized so not not that the web is wrong but the website becomes structured for the club as a whole if you know what i mean and then it's all that is part of it how do we really tackle the digital part of the organization which we don't do we do a little bit of marketing we do a bit of communications i think our digital presence is developing i think would be fair yes. so that's that's a good sign that a committee gets created that's the point it's got the key players on it in a serious way as scott with his expertise Chaz is was in there but is in and out of that i think would be fair to say in the same way for that side yeah. of it and then you've got john for as in gregory for his commercial side of the organization uh and and i think that really works and i'm and i sit there just to make the tea i think yeah, that kind of stuff right Provide the humour and the kind of you know the dumb questions because I'm quite good with those. I was just going to add actually with John Ward as well. I think we missed off actually one committee which might confuse a few people because what it is it's called the One oh. Club Committee, which is who John Ward is involved. So having on the communications committee does have a nice time. What that is essentially that's um, as rep that's slightly different. Whereas the other committees are mainly um, mostly made up of board members. The One Club Committee is actually also made up of a representative from obviously the main club. So that would be John Ward in this case. Um, for me, I can't remember who, who else is on there, but there's the representative from the academy, from the community side of things. And I think there's one other, but I can't think what, what the other section is to mind. But essentially, they meet to obviously make sure the various parts of the club um, are operating together. Because obviously, it's very easy, as you can probably expect, that we could very easily drift apart. So that gives it that glue to keep it together and also ties into that communication, um, which John then feeds back into the club, into the board every month. I think I think the, the structure like that actually works quite well for a group of 10 people to try and utilize and harness different levels of skill into the best possible use of what you can do for the requirements of the football club. I think it's a very good way of doing it. And and actually nobody's on every committee, if you think about it. 
So as I just happen to read it out, there are one or two people who are on the same committee at the same time. But fundamentally, not everybody's on one set of committees. They're on different committees. And, you know, obviously, every time the board refreshes, if the committee stayed the same, other people will be on those boards, on those committees. I mean, as the board changes itself or people like me when they sack me in June or July and I co-opted no longer. Um, and then I'll be sitting out that, that plan's not being implemented. I've read about that plan. But, you know, when 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 it changes, in all fairness, and they, they design, decide that they need a different set of skill base and they want something else to come in um, and they bring that, and then those committees change in the same way, that's good because that refreshes what you need to do. And that, that brings in new thought, uh, new ways. And I think that's a good way of matrix management. That's a good way of doing it, I think. I never used to say that when I was working properly, where matrix management would be the thing I'd hate. But actually, in this little organisation, it is good. Have you got any message um, to the fans who may be listening to this episode, David, and um, who can't can't wait for football to, to get going again? What would your message be to them? I, oh, I think I'd be exactly in their shoes. I can't wait for football to start in a safe and entertaining environment. I think we can all get lost in terms of uh, what's been going off and concerned about what's going off to be honest but football is a real release it's a good community it's a good kind of healthy well-being approach it's not just about actually watching a score win lose or you know whatever it may be it's about watching people talking to people laughing and joking chatting enjoying it occasionally people maybe take that a bit too far but generally speaking the majority of times I, I sit in the in the uh, seats at the heavy stand at the back there, the family, and, and it's quite good because you sit and watch people coming in and laughing and joking and, and oh, hello, you're all right, you're doing this, I haven't seen you for a bit. And to be honest, that's the bit that I really miss. I love watching the football, don't get me wrong, I'd love to see us win every single game. But it's about the social side of it, the community side of it, the people side of it. And, and I can't wait for that to happen because that's what everybody on that I know in this club wants to see. You know, I mean, everybody I know that I've spoken to over those 30 years, which is a lot of people, when you think about it, we've all been around the club in different ways at different times. We've almost probably been to lots of places at the same time and stood in the same bits of towns and the same sporting grounds, etc. And not necessarily all known each other for doing it in, the, in different times. But we've all got that shared bit and that's what you want to see back, isn't it? And the sooner, the better. But I guarantee what we'll try and do is we'll make sure it's the best place for you to be and a safe place to be and and you know thank you for people supporting the club but equally there's a long way to go once we get back and let's get back started and enjoy it at the same time it's it's it's, it's a good thing to be part of and it's an exciting time for this football club regardless of covid covid's one thing covid delays things but it's an exciting time in this next sort of chapter of the football club i think that's fair to say I just want to um, thank you so much for your time and all the work that you're doing for the club, David. It's um, I can't tell you how much it is appreciated. Um, take care and, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing you at Hayden Road again when it's safe to do so. Yeah, thank you very much. And thanks for what you guys have done on this because I think this is a really good, you know, this is a good, different channel of talking to people. And I think this is a great way of doing it and the more the better. So it's good to be part of a team at the end of the day. Thank you, David. Forward by Brady. This is Derby. And in comes a shot from Brady. Oh, it's in! 
seconds to go and John Brady has rounded off a dream season for Rushton and Diamonds with what looks like the winner. Somehow got beyond the despairing dive of Wayne Brown in the Chester City goal. And Rushton have a late, late lead here. Derby with the chest down. Looked around for the support. Arrived from John Brady. Outside of the foot. Brown got down a little late. Couldn't keep it out. Well, I really enjoyed that. And I found that a really fascinating insight. What did you guys make of it? Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Uh, really enjoyed in particular how open and honest uh, David was about um, what goes on at board level and, and decisions made and etc. I think there's a common, you know, sort of belief at football clubs where the board's on a pedestal um, compared to everyone else. But that's not the case at AFC R&D. You know, everyone is all in it together. And, you know, you can approach the people on the board just like um, like fans because ultimately, you know, we're all supporters of this football club and we all want the club to do well. It's interesting, isn't it? There's so much that goes on behind the scenes that just as a as an average fan, as I would say that I am, you just have no idea about. And David's just given a fascinating insight there into all kind all kinds of things, really. Um, I feel like I've, I've learned quite a bit in the last hour or so. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And hope all you listeners out there enjoyed this episode as well. Make sure to keep up to date with the podcast by following us on Twitter at Russian and Ranting and on Instagram as well at Russian and Ranting Podcast. Um, the last episode of our all-time top goal scorer, Tom Lorraine, is on there, so make sure to check that out. Um, and we'll also be doing a number of interviews over the coming months to keep you entertained whilst we're still without football. Uh, David spoke about the club's strategic plan for the next five years. Uh, to read the document in full, log on to the members area of the official website at www.members.afcdiamondsshop.com or sign up to become a member. I'd like to thank you, Joseph, Scott and Alex, um, for this episode. And thank you to all, all of you out there as well for listening into this episode. Take care, stay safe, and we'll see you soon for the next podcast.